I know. Honeys, honeys, Her Majesty's Theater. For those of you who don't know me, both of you. I am, of course, international superstar, sex symbol, accordionist, gossip bitch, home wrecker, Madonna fan, Hans. And clap. Thank you. Thank you, honeys. Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb wanted the biggest attention seeker in Adelaide to open their little show tonight, darlings. Nick Xenophon was not available then. So here I am. Honeys, honeys, I have been tasked with the very real responsibility of opening this show with the most spectacular song you've ever heard, darlings. Yes. Are you excited? Do you know what the fuck's going on right now? Oh, I love your grandpa. Okay. Honeys, I'm going to combine two of my greatest loves. Politics and Madonna. This song goes out to the ever-fornicating Barnaby Joyce. Oh yes, honeys, we're going there already. Papa, I know you're going to be upset Cause I was always your little girl You should know by now I'm not a baby, you can't believe we're doing it, can you? You always taught me right from wrong I need your help, daddy, please be strong Maybe young at heart, but I know what I'm saying The one you warned me all about The one you said I could do without We're in an awful mess, and I don't mean maybe Papa don't preach, I'm in trouble deep Papa don't preach, I've been losing sleep But I made up my mind, I'm keeping my baby Oh, oh, I'm gonna keep my baby Oh, 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 oh. Ah! Adelaide, Her Majesty's Theatre Give it up for the host of Chats 10 Looks 3, Annabelle Crab, Lee Sales, make them welcome! Tommy! Wow! Oh. Um, I know, I know. Good luck, yeah, No, no, I've got cake honey. for you. I've got cake for you. Oh, oh. Somebody brought us this cake and dropped it off at the stage door, which just is the best thing ever. Please, this takes me back. <laughs> Oh. oh, you know, oh, tastes terrible. Thank you. <laughs> that is not true. Thank you, Annabelle. It's wonderful. Wow. Hans, do you um, play the tuba by any chance? <laughs> I wouldn't. I only play instruments with dignity, though. <laughs> when we asked Hans to be here tonight, although it wasn't, we didn't begged, exactly begged, ask. Big. It's just I mentioned we'd be here, and then he was there at the stage door, like. <laughs> That's head true. to foot, midnight blue sequence, which is, you know, exactly what I look for in an opening act. Yes. Um, I did say, can you bring your most embarrassing instrument? And it wasn't a tuba, which is, you know. 
Well, you know me, I'll do any old shit gig. So here I am. This is not even our first time together on this stage no, because we obvious. were on this stage with Julian Clary for a fringe event last year and <laughs> we had to sing a karaoke version of Bohemian Rhapsody but with no lyrics. It's like yes. the nightmare that you have in primary school about... <laughs> Waking up and realising you have no pants on. That's yes. pretty much what we live through with Julian Clary it on the stage. It was like a night at La Singh powered by SA Power Networks, honey. It was just, <laughs> the music was going, but there was nothing to read. <laughs> Hans, I did have one problem with your routine. There was a point at which yes. I thought you lost credibility, which was that... Here we go. As if, as if Nick Xenophon wasn't available. <laughs> I gotcha. She's there. She's here. Look, she's here all night. Try the veal. Would you please thank the fabulous Hans? That's a (laughs) There you go. You've actually had some proper entertainment now. We always get a bit nervous before these things because they're like, oh, crap, all we do is just sit on stage and talk. We'd better get someone wearing sequins or who can (laughs) sing in. And we've done that. And there's been cake. Okay, I, I feel know. so relieved now. Thank you so much for turning out in this blistering heat. It is quite intense, isn't it? Did but you all come only because this venue's air-conditioned? Yeah, no. It's <laughs> my fear. I did text sales when I am like, it's all right. It's ambient temperature of about 21. It's beautiful in here. Even Queensland's not this hot today. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Queensland. Yeah. I'll have a few words to say to you about that in a moment. Um... Thank you for turning out. Before I forget to say this, because every time we do a live podcast, we like to send some proceeds the way of a local charity. And um, tonight's charity is called Seeds of Affinity. It's a great semaphore-based group that looks after women who are um, coming out of prison, readjusting to um, post-prison life, and they do an awesome job on not very much. So we're going to help them out a little bit tonight. Thanks to all of you. Far be it from me to be a stickler for the rules, Dahl, but weren't we told before the show that we were meant to stay on the carpet? (laughs) For lighting reasons. There's also a sign um, in the green room backstage saying, please do not use hairspray in here. Use it in the loading dock instead. We're just picturing all these loading dock people looking like Margaret Thatcher with like... (laughs) Actually, that is a joke that our friend Miranda sent through, so um, thanks, Miranda, for that gag. Her mum's in the house, by the way, tonight. Hey, Jansy, how are you? Hey, Jansy, can you say hi so Murph can hear you on the recording? No, nothing. She's too shy. Or stayed at home. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't show up. Now, thank you to Sales for coming all this way because as a Brisbane-born person, obviously you are not really used to the classy expanses of cities that, you know. Excuse me, I just changed out of my thongs and put proper shoes on. She has been walking around with bare feet and I'm like, mate, we wear shoes in Adelaide, but like, (laughs) up to you, obviously. Um, And uh, I also am aware that you are not much of a poetry fan. No. Uh, Regular listeners of the podcast will recollect this. Um, I have therefore written a slam poem for us to perform together. Would everyone like to hear a slam poem? Yes. 
Um, I've written your bits, love. As you as you know, I, I like a good few months to prepare, so it always yeah. makes me. I like makes to keep me her on edge. Now, because we were too slack to organise a uh, percussion section, I'm hoping to rely on those of you who possess feet in the audience uh, to keep time. So, um, because I've got my both my hands busy, can you we, we want demonstrate? The, we will rock you rhythm, right? So, I'll, everyone, just follow me once we start off. Yeah, keep that up. <laughs> okay. Hit it, crab. Right. Welcome to the festival state, old bean. As a Queenslander, <laughs> this must be quite the scene. Wine in a bottle instead of a cask. If you have any questions, be sure to ask. Well, thanks, Ms. Crab. It's nice to be here. I'm a little confused by your cloudy beer, but I will concede you make nice wine. If I don't drink the water, then I should be fine. Ooh, burn! <laughs> well, come on, Nail Sales. Don't be rude. This is your one chance to eat proper food. No more ham steaks with pineapple rings. In Adelaide, you can eat all the things. Hey there, crab, don't throw me no shade. I'm sure it's very nice here in Adelaide, but on the winter days when it's grey and cold, I'll be up in Brizzy drinking 4X gold. Well, think about your history and then let me know. We've got Dunstan, you've got Joe. We're the only state where convicts weren't sent, but everybody knows your cops are still bent. Never you mind about Joe versus Don. Your next premier's Nick Xanafun. And by the way, wow, interesting times when an Adelaide person wants to talk about crime. Ow! We don't talk about that. Well, the first chicks to vote were here in Adelaide, but round your parts, you've still got meter maids. Oh, meter maids, hey? Well, boo-hoo-hoo. Let's talk lady premiers. We've had two. Ow. All right. Well, famous writers move here just to further their career. Looking at you, J.M. Kurtzier. Oh, face it, crab. He came here for a snooze for a nice, quiet life with some quality booze. Chris Pine's accent, what's with that? Yeah, at least we don't sound like we're strangling a cat. I heard Adelaideans are kind of snooty. <laughs> yeah, well, at least you can understand our footy. <laughs> you haven't won the AFL since 2004. The year we beat you. You want a little more? Bring it on, baby. You don't stand a chance. Oh, for God's sake, it's chance and <laughs> dance. And don't look at me askance. <laughs> well, let's call a true sales. Enough of this raving. I don't want to get on to daylight saving. Let's pop out for a tour of the Barossa. Okay, crab, but you're all a bunch of tosses. All right. <laughs> Audience participation over. Wow. 
We made that seem really cool, I think. You've excelled yourself again um, <laughs> with writing that, like that thing that you wrote for um, Canberra. But there was a little bit of an incident actually in the writing of this, which was a case, oh, of, here mis- we go. A case of mistaken identity, uh, where Crab was absolutely thrilled with a particular rhyme that she wrote for this poem. And then she... Um, I can't believe you're doing this, by the way, but excellent. She mentioned it to me about three times, like, oh, I can't wait till you get to the bit about this. I'm so happy with it. I'm really happy with it. And then she sent it to our friend, Murph and our friend Murph sent back um, you know it's J.M. Kurtzia right who's the person who's moved to Adelaide but because Crab was so thrilled with the original rhyme that she came up with I'm going to give her the chance to actually share it do you need the script or can you you know it off by heart so I, <laughs> like it all right so I may have here's I need to explain this first by just saying <laughs> Commonwealth country based <laughs> major international prize winning writers who have grey hair, beards, and glasses and double vowels in their name okay. really confused me, right? Like I just get them mixed up. Okay. It's not unreasonable. Okay, let's. So <laughs> here it is. Like a meat pie floater sounds kind of starchy. But guess who moved here? Michael Ondachi. <laughs> I forgot which one moved here. Mate. The heartbreak when she discovered that it was, it was such a good rhyme. Starchy and on Darchy. Anyway. <laughs> You're pretty disappointed. Um, I'm glad that you seem to be coming around to the sort of musical con- content in the shows, but do you th- consider rap to be music? Yes. Like, why? Well, because... <laughs> Because when performed, but that was not a rap, by the way. That was just some sort of aberration. Um, <laughs> but uh, because it's got rhythm and content, and it makes you move around, like I, I sort of look. I, I googled it a bit yesterday. I feel like if it doesn't have melody, that's a bit of an issue. I respect rap as an art form, but I'm not sure if it's music or if it's poetry to music or whatever. But anyway, but I'm open to learning more about that. But but for me, I think surely it has to have melody, harmony, rhythm. It's got rhythm. And form, it's got form, but it doesn't have melody. But maybe then the voice is like percussion, so it's just rhythm. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to spend a little more time studying up on that. But do you know why I was thinking about that? Because I recently watched a doco that I know that you've watched because I harangued you to watch it, which is called The Artist is Present, which is about Marina Abramovich. Does anyone here know who Marina Abramovich is? So she's a Serbian... She's the most famous performance artist in the world. So I'm guessing that like probably like... <laughs> What, can you stop the sales planning? <laughs> like, just like, has anybody ever here been overseas? Anyone? It's because it's because <laughs> anyone. Oh, good, quite a few then. I bet you when I asked that at, oh, well, I was going to say I bet you when I asked that at the Queensland show. I wouldn't ask that in Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you've now taken over my job of sledging you. Wow. <laughs> my work here is um, done. <laughs> the artist is present. Is there was a clip that went really viral from? She did a show in New York at MoMA called um, "The Artist Is Present," which was a retrospective of her, of her career. And there was a um, performance in it where she sat, I think, for seventy-five days in a chair, where you could, as a member of the audience, come and sit opposite her and make eye contact. And she was there from like nine a.m. till six p.m. <sighs> without on. moving. She had a little potty in her stool in case anyone's. Oh no! Did Sorry. she? Yeah. Oh, did she actually? They covered that? that in the documentary. What were you? No, did they? Yeah. Oh, I missed that bit. How strange. Um, so she... The missed went... the most interesting bit. <laughs> Don't you just think, straight away, I just think, well, what's, how's that working? Like, I did, but I... D- it's like wow, covering must... that um, election night a couple of years ago, remember, when... <laughs> I just saw an adult nappy. Yeah, I, um, I, I, got, 
after that happened, after we did that election night that went on and on forever, and poor Penny Wong was just like, how do I get out of here? I'm sitting next to Scott Morrison and I have been for like six hours. I need to leave. And um, afterwards, a journalist rang me and said, did you go to the toilet at any point? And I said, no. And she said, well, what about Lee Sales? <laughs> and I said, I couldn't possibly tell you for sure, but she didn't leave the desk. <laughs> Actually, sometimes you can be so funny. Last night I texted Crab and said, oh, damn it, the dress I was going to wear to the show tomorrow night, I've left it at work. What are you going to wear? And she replied, well, I'll go nude in solidarity. <laughs> um, no, the, the clip that went viral from this show is Marina Abramovich had this uh, lover called Uli, who is her long-term um, artistic collaborator. They had this very passionate love affair. When they broke up, it was this famous thing where they each started at one end of the Great Wall of China and met in the middle and shook hands and said goodbye, and it was the end of their relationship and their professional collaboration. They had done lots of collaborations that involved running into each other nude. and Screaming at each other's face and various stuff like this. Just standard (laughs) youth dating stuff. (laughs) The The stuff that went viral was... So between people in the show, she looks down and then she looks up when a new person sits down and Uli came in and sat in front of her and it was this amazing clip where the expression on both their faces is incredible and she starts crying and oh, it's just really amazing. Anyway, the doco is built around that show but to tie it back to my rap point, when I started watching that... <laughs> We've all been patiently waiting. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, it's now 1am, I didn't realise. <laughs> um... um when I started watching that doco and I'd seen bits and pieces of her before, I would have said I didn't consider that type of thing art. I just thought that's weird, like screaming in each other's face like this far away. That's not art. Looking at someone's not art. By the end of that doco, I thought that is definitely art. I was a complete convert to her art by the end of it. Also hard work because the idea of sitting in a place for three months effectively and staring at people full time. I mean, obviously it's borderline creepy if you think about doing it as a normal person. But, I mean, the idea that it would be physical hard work is not something that really occurs to you. But you can actually sort of see this incredible duress that she's going through. Um, I felt a bit, a tiny bit ripped off when I watched the documentary because I had always assumed from seeing that little clip that they hadn't seen each other for years and that it was a complete surprise. But in the doco, you know, he's around at her house for the reunion beforehand and, you know, so they're sort of shooting the breeze and stuff. But then her expression is as though she hasn't seen him for decades. And I had a big argument with Jeremy, well, a polite argument, but he was saying like, well, that's just, you know, she's just making that up, you know. She was just putting that on. This sort of incredible moment was manufactured. And I think, well, that she's a performance artist. I mean, what she does is take energy and produce a performance that is moving and significant, no matter, like, whether she's been having a chico roll with the guy, you know, <laughs> at the cafe at 10 to 9. Whoop, better look stunned to see you, old collaborator. <laughs> now, now that I've discovered I missed the potty bit, I feel a little sort of wrong-footed, but I, my recollection of the doco... Call yourself an observer. <laughs> My recollection is, even when he goes to her house, they don't have a discussion about whether he's coming to the show to participate, do they? No. Okay, good. Because I, I thought, I don't know how you could have faked that emotion. It was... Well, she's a performer. Like, one of her other ex-husbands, who is, like, curating the exhibition, just says, 
everything for her is a performance. And I think that's right. But I don't, like, I don't think it makes her less of an artist. I think it makes her more of an artist. I mean, what she is is a person who elicits responses. And she has this incredible face. I mean, like, you can't... Mm. Even on television, you know, you see her sort of looking up and this extraordinary face and you can see the effect that it has. Even on people who have planned to have a certain response while yeah. they're in the queue, you know, they sit it down. Was, it was fascinating watching the faces because some people were just t- curious, like just sort of staring into her face like, what is this about? Some people became emotional really fast. Some people looked sort of like defiant. Um, some people looked really thrilled to be there. But it was... Um, I mean, her body, I guess, is the canvas, you know. But there was another um, work of art in that same show that I found really fascinating as well, which was she and Uli had done it originally and they had two actors replicating it in this retrospective, which was two people were standing completely naked facing each other, quite close together, in a door frame. And so to go through into this gallery you had to walk through these two people and there was no way to do it without brushing against them. And it was really fascinating to see, again, the different ways people did it. Most people didn't make eye contact and just sort of tried to through. Some people would look right in the face, but it was fascinating in the same way that My watching My favourite ones were the New York arty types who were trying to look totally cool. I, I just brush past nipples every day <laughs> on my way to like this. Oh, what? Oh, there's new people? <laughs> D- didn't notice that is how relaxed I am about bodies. But I, th- I think one of the reasons that... Did, did you also feel like it was art at the end? Yeah, right. totally. But I've always thought that... I mean, I, I went to see at Mona um, an, a retrospective of hers and that was where they had that um, thing that she did with the rice and lentil sorting, which was a sort of participative artwork. And it, it's a sort of thing that, you know, you hear Alan Jones going, what, that's art? We've got, got a funding grant. <laughs> but, like, it's a big, long room with a big table that it has just a huge long pile of lentils and rice mixed together and your job as a uh, as a visitor to the exhibition is they give you a they take away your phone and anything that connects you to the outside world they make you wear a, a white coat and they give you a piece of paper and a pencil and you get seated somewhere along this long table and they ask you to sort out and count the rice and lentil grains and it's it's bizarre because there's no time limit. You can stay as long as you like. You can do 10 and then leave or you can sort the whole lot, you know. And it's, it's amazing to be put in a situation where there are no rules about how to react and you become aware that your reaction is actually part of the exhibition. And I think that that is her genius, you know, to provoke a reaction, to make people uncomfortable and to feel like they are a blood, you know, to, to think about how they're going to respond to the situation. And it was interesting, I noticed there's a bit where she has this training camp where actors who want to be in the retrospective come and she's sort of auditioning them and training them and she makes them do that rice exercise. And it's partly, I think, because most of her works involve massive feats of endurance um, and patience to be able to um, work when, when they show up at her house, which is, of course, an amazing place, um, she makes them all pumpkin soup and then she doesn't let them eat for three days. <sighs> It's 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 fascinating. It's on ABC iView at the moment. It's really good. Yeah. The um, gateway drug that put me onto that was I read and had been sitting on my Kindle for ages. The Museum of Modern Love by Heather Rose. Um, this year's Stella Prize winner. It was. Excellent. 
excellent. And in fact, it got me out of my reading slump that I feel like I've been really? in for a year. Oh, yes. That's lovely. It was Congratulations. fantastic. Um, it is basically, and it's a genius, it's one of those ideas for a book that you think, oh, why didn't I think of that? So it's built around that Abramovich show, and it's different people who've become obsessed by going and observing and watching the different people sit through and these sort of, there's probably, I guess, three, maybe four actually main characters who sort of um, come in and out of it. And the reason, you know, you get the backstory about why are they going to this and what's going on in their lives. And, you know, one of them wants to sit and some of the others don't want to sit. And so um, it's built around that. And it's just an Excellent um, book, really great. How much time when you were reading it did you devote to thinking, damn, I wish I'd thought about structuring a novel around various visitors to the Marina Abramovich exhibition that I don't yet know about? (laughs) It just made me think you've got to pay attention in life all the time because there's so many ideas out there. You've just got to pluck them off the tree. Yes, that's quite right. Well, That's how easy it is. I am out of my film slump. And if you're out of your reading slump, um, I've got other... Glad news. I'm now, I, I've, I, there are so many films that I want to see at the moment that I'm running out. Wow. So give me a bit of a lowdown. Can I just thank the chatter who brought this for us also yeah. backstage, Pistachio and Raspberry. We love you. Thank you. It is a really superlative cake. And I really am thrilled to think that there's probably more of it somewhere as well because that's a really generous slice. But it looks like that is a, like a so big good. cake that someone has really put a lot of work into. (laughs) Everything is perfect about that cake. So hit me with your films. Yeah. Well, um, so Sales and I actually went to see a film together recently uh, to celebrate my birthday. Uh, You didn't show up for the dinner because you're just, you lack commitment to me. (laughs) I've got a TV show to host. I was hosting my television show. Yeah, your television show. (laughs) It always comes first. And then she gets to the cinema and she's just really ropeable that no one's got to the cinema yet. She's oh. like, where is everybody? <laughs> Texting, angry. <laughs> I assume you're making this up for comic effect. <laughs> I am, actually. So, but we went to see I, Tonya, which is... Who's, has anyone seen it? Oh. Just such pleasure at the thought of seeing that film. And I deliberately didn't read up anything to refresh my memory about the whole Tonya Harding thing. In fact, when I was telling the children about this movie I was going to see, I said, oh, it's about an ice skater called Tonya Harding who broke the knee of a a woman called Katerina Witt. I got the victim all mixed up. (laughs) That's how much I could remember about it. And we went with Brenda as well, who just had no idea who Tonya Harding was and by the end of the film still didn't have any idea. Brenda had been travelling. This was Brenda's story. She'd been travelling in 1994, and so she said she knew had a complete black hole for the news of 1994. And yeah. so she she just had never heard of the entire story. Guys, she was in prison. I'm pretty sure she was in prison. <laughs> There's a lot that quiet librarian isn't telling us. <laughs> so we didn't. We deliberately didn't talk about the film at the end because we said, you know, let's not have a conversation in real life. Let's save it for when we're on stage. <laughs> That's how a natural friendship works. <laughs> <laughs> so what did right, you so the first thing to know about this film, and it, it's, it's, it's almost like a documentary style, but it's, it's featuring actors. So there's an actor playing Tonya Harding. Her name is Margot Robbie. She is awesome in this film. And 
Um, Alison Janney plays um, Brilliant. Tonya's mother and is the most sort of scratchy, hatchet-faced, chain-smoking, foul-mouthed stage mom you've <laughs> ever seen. So also, good. I love that for no reason at all, uh, for some of the interviews, you know, that she's giving her recollections of what happens, um, Alison Janney is sitting on a couch with a parrot on her shoulder <laughs> who just keeps biting her ear. And it's... <laughs> So good. She, there's one of my favourite lines in it too is um, where she says, "So Tonya Harding's come. The, I mean, the mother's just a horror. Tonya Harding's brought the boyfriend to meet the mother, who is the one who organises the. Um, and she, Alison Janney goes, "So are you a flower or a gardener?" And and Tonya and the boyfriend both look a bit sort of taken aback, and she says. Um, well, because every relationship, that's what they are. You've got a flower and you've got a gardener. I mean, she's never gardened a day in her life, so what are you? <laughs> and he sort of still looks puzzled and she goes, you know, I'm a gardener who wants to be a flower. How fucked am I? <laughs> it's a great moment in the film. <laughs> the thing that was bizarre about it, though, and obviously it's all from Tonya Harding's perspective and it's all about her being like this essentially a bogan who's like a genius at skating and who is looked down upon by the skating establishment. She's like an incredibly proficient technical skater with this natural genius, but she is never accepted and she battles always um, against the prejudice of judges and so on. And it's what kind of leads to what goes on. So it's a subjective account, right? But the amazing thing about the film, I think, is that the level of violence is just so sustained but uncommented on. Like, it really establishes the environment that this kid grew up in as this one of a constant, constant undertow of violence. Like, she's constantly being slapped around by her mum. She goes out with this guy who starts hitting her more or less straight away. And it, it makes it even more sinister and dreadful that it's not made a point of in the film. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like this... It's like wallpaper. It's really... It's upsetting, but also the film is very funny, which somehow makes it worse. Um, it's really... It's a really interesting device, I reckon. And um, there's this... The line in the film that really stood out to me is... And this is obviously taken from an interview with Tonya Harding as performed by Margot Robbie. She says... Oh, you know, what's her, what is the name of the one that got hit? I can't remember her name. Nancy Kerrigan. No, that, yeah. I'm sorry. It's just a thing. I can't <laughs> remember that woman's name. Nancy, Nancy Kerrigan got hit once and the world, like, went crazy. That's my whole life, you know? Yeah, it's like... The, the yeah the boyfriend it's it's like every everything in my life seemed to lead up to that moment and then everything in my life ever since has been about that moment you know you could couldn't escape it but I mean I went um, it, it's really interesting watching these films about real life things that are then dramatized because it's amazing how your memory sort of just twists things around because yeah. in my head I had thought that she was basically up to her neck in the organizing of the kneecapping I didn't think that she'd done it herself but I, I you know I basically almost thought she was there um, she was actually she was divorced from the guy the guy the hus ex-husband didn't do it either it was like a few steps removed from them and the film I mean it was quite sympathetic to her but it was sort of unclear and I think it's unclear in reality just how much she knew but she wasn't there was never a suggestion that she was directly involved in lining it up. But I went, um, you know, Googling it afterwards, of course, as you do, to just learn a bit more about her. Because I was fascinated by this idea of 
I mean, she was so unbelievably driven, as anyone who's a professional athlete has to be. You have to just push through the most unbelievable pain and you've got to be so disciplined. And she was working minimum wage jobs at the same time as training for the Olympics. It was unbelievable. Anyway, the New York Times had this great feature called Tonya Harding Would Like Her Apology Now. Have you read it by any chance? No. So it's really interesting. So a reporter goes and spends some time just hanging out with her. And she's pretty much as portrayed in the film, like just this woman who's had a fairly hard life but has a certain charm about her. Um, And I was wondering, you know, all that drive and ambition and discipline and stuff, you know, where where does that go when you're not a professional athlete anymore? And I was thinking as well, like, well, does she still have her ice skate? Because she was so in love with it. And so they go to this, she does ice skate occasionally. And so they go to this ice rink where young, you know, 11, 12 year old girls who are good ice skaters are doing their weekly training or whatever. And he writes, so she goes out on the ice and he says, when Miss Harding got out there with her first jump, the girls who had been practising all morning now looked like total amateurs by comparison. At 47, she still holds so much power in those thighs and so much grace in her hands and posture. And imagine that. Like, she never never could skate again, banned for life from skating, and obviously so talented. And then with her life, like, you know, she'd worked as a welder, a painter at a metal fabrication company, a hardware sales clerk at Sears, where every day some guy would ask if there was a man who could help him, and every day she'd school that guy on how much more she knows about tools and just about anyone. Like, oh, what a hard life. What is it with all of these movies about sporting stars at the moment? Like, you know how there's this sort of thing we were talking recently about all of a sudden there's 90 films about Winston Churchill? Like, <laughs> like oh, it's like waiting for a yeah, bus, a you know, where, you know, nothing and then all of a sudden three. And, and also, but just films about real life events getting turned into, like, um, so the Billie Jean King one, I presume you're thinking about. What's Battle of the Sexes. And now all of a sudden, I noticed on the plane, I was looking at films, there's now a Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe film that's about to come out. Totally going to that. And, um, and there's another one called Wimbledon, which is, uh, so now, now we're in the middle of a, like, post-Churchill, now we're into a tennis clump. Like, surely there, there should be some organisation involved. On real life films, I also saw The Post, which, is that on right, Australia I haven't seen yet? that is yet. That on here yet? Is I it think on? it's here. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so, this is your, just your casual way of saying, I, oh, I saw it in New York. York so, is that, do you have movies here? Or, it's like, it's not Brisbane, but we do have cinemas. Yeah. I should have actually. It was Marina Abramovich was a missed opportunity when I was in New York. I, I popped onto Murmur where the Marina Abramovich. Oh, I think my ears just started <laughs> to bleed. Oh. No, the post. Uh, Loved Tom Hanks as Ben Bradley. Um, it's, it's about the Pentagon Papers. In fact, our dude from the Americans, Philip, is Daniel Ellsberg. That is going to secure my attendance at the film. <laughs> uh, Meryl Streep really annoyed me because. Personal History by Catherine Graham is one of my favourite memoirs. Nowhere in that book did I get the impression that Catherine Graham was a bit of a dithering, you know, nervous Nelly, and that's how Meryl plays her. Oh, ow. It was really annoying. Like, like, oh, I'm in this room full of men and I'm just not sure if I can speak. <laughs> Sorry. No. Books brought to life that you don't approve of, you know. <laughs> Join the queue. Well, you're very worried about Red Sparrow being made into a film, oh, aren't you? talking about that at the back, yeah. So Red Sparrow, I saw the um, promo in the cinema, which is that thriller that we both read and enjoyed as a holiday Great read. Great holiday read. Great holiday read. If anyone's read it, it's a, sort of built around this character, Nathaniel, who's a... He's not just a CIA agent, he's in an agency that's, like, more secret than the CIA, uh, goes to Russia and goes to here and there and everywhere. Anyway, there's this secondary character in it. Is her name Natalia or something like that, I think? I can't remember. Anyway, she is this called a sparrow, which is a high-level Russian secret agent. 
in the film, they've flipped it. Jennifer Lawrence is the Russian secret agent and it's all about her and they've somehow seemed to have made it all about the fact that she goes to this sparrow school where she's taught how to use sex Seduce to... Seduce other spies. It's just like, really? Oh, there's going to be a lot on. of screen time chewed up with that, isn't there? I just feel it in my bones. That's annoying. What other films have you seen if you've busted well, out of here? Um, I saw Sweet Country um, very recently and, gee, that's a good film. I really... Um, you know, Warwick Thornton is such an interesting director, I think, and this is, um, it's essentially a Western, you know, it's set in the Northern Territory out back um, in the 30s, and um, there's kind of like Sam Neill is this sort of um, man of God and station operator, good guy, and his um, he's got like an Aboriginal stockman who works with him called Sam, who he's like good friends with, and this sort of terrible, obviously crazy at the first get-go guy moves into the station next door and wants some help making some cattle yards or something. So Sam gets sent over and like all sorts of brutality ensues and eventually Sam, uh, you know, uh, retaliates against the landowner and then goes on the run. Brian Brown is the local cop. Um, but it's just thinking about the depiction of violence in that Tonya Harding um, film makes me just think differently about the way de- violence is depicted in this essentially Western Australian-based movie. Um, there's all these devices that um, Warwick Thornton uses to explain the violence that's not visual. Like, So the opening shot of the film is basically shot down into a billy of boiling tea. So it's just a pot of water boiling and you can see a white hand like tipping tea leaves in and then tipping sugar in and you can hear the sound of a guy like really hassling out this Aboriginal guy and just like really like slapping around and humiliating him. It's really And it stays on the shot of the billy the whole time. Yeah, it's like a minute and a half long shot of a billy boiling. So... He plays around all the time with displacing the visual from what you're hearing. Mm. And it's quite... It's, I would, it's slow moving, but it doesn't feel slow. Like, it's just... It, it works on a different time somehow. Like, it's a really interesting um, film. And there's a whole lot of... Like, there's flashbacks, but often they'll be just interspersed without warning into a scene that you're watching and you'll keep hearing the audio of the scene that you're watching but you'll get a visual flashback to something else that's happened before or sometimes something that is going to happen. Is it confusing or can you... No, it's hard to... When I explain that technique, like it just sounds like, well, that would not work, that sounds ridiculous. But... Weirdly enough, it does. And it's something to do with the landscape too because it gets so open, like it's stunningly shot. And somehow you feel like the the time frame stretches out to fit the landscape. I don't know. I think it really works. I know Clint Eastwood has that, um, I reckon, slow directorial style where shots run really long and it's often that... He's got a pretty slow style when he's opening political conferences too. Like <laughs> still one of my favourite moments in the entire Republican Party history, the man interviewing a chair. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. Um, that's because it was associated with Mitt Romney and nobody can remember him either. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think I covered the most forgettable election in American history, which was George Bush versus John Kerry. That is so such a rip-off. Do you sometimes oh, look at like correspondence that preceded you and came after you and just think... 
Yeah. I just got At the time I thought it was absolutely thrilling because I just thought, oh wow, I'm getting to cover a presidential election. 2008 then of course was Obama v McCain with Palin and the Hillary thing it was like the best one in ever. So yeah, I felt really ripped off. And I then got the to one go over that. for that one. Oh. Don't hate me. Oh. <laughs> I actually rang Jeremy once and I was like, oh, I'm in Cleveland. I'm just watching Bruce Springsteen perform at an Obama oh. rally. And he just hung up. That was just it. He's just like, no, sorry. <laughs> Don't blame me. Um, have you read Fire and Fury? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just, so um, when sales was clang in New York, um, I was like, get me that book, get me that book. I don't care that you fell over and broke your nose. I want you to go and line up at a bookshop and get me that book. A couple of people texted me about that and I tried to ask exactly the same thing and I tried three different bookstores and everyone I'd walk in, I'd go, have you guys got Fire and Fury? They'd go, oh, we sold out of that yesterday. What, are you from <laughs> Queensland or something? Like, yeah. I haven't you got not... daylight saving yet, love? <laughs> I could not get my hands on a hard copy of and that. And then, uh, then I really let up on you because I'm like, oh, I can just get it on Kindle. No worries. Uh, Stand down. <laughs> um, I, I, on the way home, actually, on the plane, I was alternating between binge-watching The Crown Season 2 and reading Fire and Fury. Okay. The greatest 24 hours of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Phone turned off and just, oh, yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be good ping-pong. Fire and Fury, I did read with a slight, you This know, is the Michael Wolff book about life inside the White House. Loosely sourced. Yeah. <laughs> opportunistically written. Yeah. But sort of fly on the wall-ish. Um, look, it was... So fly on the you, wall so you if the wall it. and the fly maybe were there. But like, <laughs> so you, you read it with a bit of a grain of salt, did you? Um, look, it, it's written really loose. And so mostly you read political books and you read them at two levels, I reckon. Um, particularly if you're a like, horrible old political tragic. Like you, you read... You read for the first reading, but then you're also reading for, like, where is this coming from? Who's providing the briefings for this book? Like, who's, who is this person talked to? It's always a really interesting thing I find reading Australian political books because I just think, oh, let me try and work out who are all of these sources. But Wolf doesn't even do, like, a senior source said. He just says, well, this happened. And then in his explanatory memo <laughs> for the book, he's like, well, you know... Um, Everything is so crazy. There's no such thing as truth in that building. So I'm just, I've just sort of come up with the most likely series of events based on all of these people that I talked to. And he sort of said that he became like this sort of fixture. He was just like lurking around in the West Wing with people talking to him, which I totally buy. I do understand that. I think that that probably did happen. And I do quite – I like Michael Wolff's writing and I think – the book that he wrote about Murdoch called The Man Who Owns the News is actually the most perceptive and interesting book about Murdoch, I think, that I've read. It has some questionable factual stuff, though, too, doesn't it, that book? The Murdoch book? Yeah. I thought there was some I've swallowed it all hook, line and sinker. Did he not, <laughs> did he not buy the media company? <laughs> the, um, it's interesting you should say that you found that insightful because Fire and Fury, I mean, there were bits that I thought, like as you just said, where it'll be a meeting between, like, you know, Trump and his national security advisor or something like that, and the dialogue will be indirect quotes, which I think, how's that possible? Like, were you in, were you in the room? Because I would think if you're not in the room or if every person there hasn't fact-checked the quotes, how can you put it in indirect quotes? But anyway, but um, there was bits where I loved... Um, just the sort of extraneous colour that really added nothing to it other than texture but was just so delicious. Like, <laughs> the very first page says, 
The first interview, this is with Trump, the first interview occurred well before I could have imagined a Trump White House, much less a book about it. In late May 2016 at Trump's home in Beverly Hills, the then candidate polishing off a pint of haagen vanilla as he happily and idly opined about a range of topics. <laughs> I just love the detail of that Every food-based detail is just absolute rolled oh, gold the in that book. The cheeseburgers. Because yeah. you know he's got a kind of a um, Trump... and he. I mean, this is true because he's said it on television with his lips moving and he's admitted it. He does have a very weird food um, OCD type thing where he has a great fear of being poisoned or getting germs from somewhere. So he likes to eat McDonald's because he gets his staff to go in there. The cooks don't know that they're cooking for Donald Trump. It's just like mass-produced and so he knows that no one will poison him because they don't know that the burgers are for him. So, like, <laughs> according to Wolf, um, he retires at about 6.30pm most nights into his room in um, the residential wing and he takes a couple of cheeseburgers and watches six televisions at once. Um, so, all of that detail was just great. Um, but then there are bits of... I find his writing a bit, at times clunky and bad but then some of the insights full of spelling errors too because like they've obviously gone holy crap we're gonna get this gotta get it straight out oops sorry wow (laughs) that escalated quickly um and so there's lots of like you know um just things that are a bit wrong you know like yeah they poured over the manuscript pay p-a-w-e-d sort of thing seriously there's a few of those just like (laughs) guys But then some of the insights, like this was a bit that I thought, that's so true and I hadn't thought about it. Most presidents arrived in the White House from more or less ordinary political life and could not help but be awed and reminded of their transformed circumstances by their sudden elevation to a mansion with palace-like servants and security, a plane at constant readiness and downstairs a retinue of couture... I was going to say couturiers... (laughs) Courteous and advisors. <laughs> Imagine if they were couturiers. Like, he just had... You know. Trump, could we nip your waist in a little more? <laughs> but this would not have been that different from Trump's former life in Trump Tower, which was more commodious and to his taste than the White House, with servants, security, courtiers and advisors always on the premises and a plane at the ready. The big deal of being president was not so apparent to him. I thought that is really interesting because it qu- explains quite a lot. Because there's a bit earlier on that says in the first week when Trump was there, he was already trying to curtail his schedule of meetings and keep his normal golf habits, which is like, are you joking? You're the president of the United States states how could you possibly think you're going to have time to keep any normal you know semblance to your life but then you in that context you think well yeah actually it was no big deal to it wouldn't have impressed you wouldn't have been impressed by oh my god I'm the president now imagine how dreadful it would be to live in a country where the national leader had to downsize to the official residence <laughs> just <laughs> yeah <laughs> Anyway, I ate up that book like popcorn. I couldn't stop reading it. Same, I loved and it. And in the end, I don't know, it's sort of like everything from the White House. You think, well, wow, that's crazy. Apparently that's happening. The, the other bit in it that I found really interesting was he talks a little bit about this stuff around um, fake news and how facts seem to have less currency, um, which is a subject dear to my heart because it's what I've written about in my book 10 years ago on doubt, which I have a new Clang. edition of. <laughs> For sale out the back later on. I think that's like absolutely um, intuitable from uh, <laughs> that, that particular. But when I wrote that, um, I 
there had been this quote that had been said at the time, um, or a few years earlier, in 2004, which had appeared in this magazine profile, um, and it was written by a journalist called Ron Susskind, and it was about the Bush White House, George W. Bush, and uh, it had this quote in it, which at the time, in the article, it's an anonymous source, but it was revealed later that it was Carl Rove, who was Bush's chief of staff and a really master strategist. And this quote was that, Rove said to Susskind that journalists like Susskind existed in what the Bush inner circle called the reality-based community. Hello, yes. Which Rove defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from the judicious study of discernible reality. Yes. Rove said, that's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. <laughs> and at the time when that came Incredibly out... prescient. Everyone in Washington was like, oh my God, who said that? That is so Machiavellian and unbelievable, now it just looks so prescient and ahead of its time. Ah, oh, freaks me out. Yes, it is quite cheering, isn't it? Um, <laughs> have well, you let's... read any other good books lately? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's... You know what you've been begging me to talk about? Every oh, is to- it my time? Yes. Can I? Oh, every podcast. She's like, I need to talk about my kingfish ham. I need to talk about my kingfish ham. And when we came up with the rundown for this, she was like, there's one thing that's non-negotiable, my kingfish ham, whatever that is. <laughs> I made ham out of a kingfish recently. Say so how? how? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, my dear sweet building block of human democracy. Uh, so Mark Best, who's a chef who opened up a restaurant called Mark that was open in Sydney for a, a long time, um, has published this cookbook that I got for Christmas last year, and it's called Best Kitchen Basics. And some of it is basic and some of it is just, like, cartoonishly elevated to, like, just sometimes I like to cook something that is really complicated, you know? And if you've got a bit of a day clear, nothing delights me more than to make some stupidly complicated process-driven thing. And don't look at me like that because you made that pistachio raspberry trifle thing. Not too similar to this. I feel really embarrassed at my side like of the cake your bohemi. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like that only harder. Not, not that that wasn't hard, like, but like the, the trifle that you made involved, you know, raising uh, raspberries, <laughs> hand-feeding them, and then... Squishing them gently and making them into jelly, and then just a you thousand. You have to sieve them to get yeah, the juice out so without seeds. So annoying. <laughs> so you've done that too. Oh, so I let like me have it. my kingfish ham. He's got a recipe for kingfish ham in his book. I'm just thinking that sounds absurd, but also a bit compelling. He's also got a recipe for 47 egg yolk tagliatelle, which I, when I went on leave late last year, went. I'm making that. I am making. A pasta that has 47 egg yolks in it. Do you know what really drew me to it? 47, not 48. Why? Why? <laughs> why, 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 why? Uh, what, well, can you just hold that question because I had an, an earlier question, which is, what did you do with the whites? A fleet of pavlovas. Right. Actually, I did a bunch of things with the whites. I did do some pav- – I did a, like a powerful amount of pavlovas. But I also for a while had egg white omelettes for breakfast, so I was like, now I'm 15 and I have an eating disorder was my like, <laughs> life pattern. I 
Actually, egg white omelettes are delicious. And, and can you freeze egg white or like what do you do with it? Oh, my dear, dear, dear lady. <laughs> we have so much to cover, don't we? You can freeze egg whites and they freeze really well. And in fact, fun fact, a pavlova made with a frozen and defrosted egg white is, I think, a superior pavlova. Yeah. Wow. The more that they were... Mim, are you, are you nodding? My baking friend Miriam in the front row who I can see, who's like one of the greatest <laughs> bakers I know, is just like looking at me like, am I right about that? Right. Mim needs oh, okay. some uses so for egg whites. Um, right. So, yeah, no, I did, um, I did the omelettes and I did... There's something else that I did, though, that I can't quite remember, but it was excellent. And I don't know. I had a wonderful f- time. Why but 47? I don't know. I do not know. So just what... Does that go in the pasta or the sauce? Sorry. That's a legitimate question. Why is everybody laughing? I haven't had a response like this since the spaghetti tree. This is... (laughs) How much do you know about how you make pasta? Nothing. (laughs) I've never made pasta. This is like when I went to Tony Abbott's house. Like, in the 2013 election campaign, we did Kitchen Cabinet at... (laughs) Tony Abbott's house and Kevin Rudd's house. And I had this brilliant, I thought, idea to do um, egg-based diplomacy. So I got like four eggs and I separated them. And I, out of the yolks, I made custard to go with Tony Abbott's nutty quince crumble. And then out of the whites, I made pavlova to serve to Kevin. And like of the same eggs. And I thought, oh, isn't that adorable? Like I'm bringing them together through eggs. And this is what you learn about people from just, like, seeing the way they respond to situations. Because I told the story to Tony Abbott, and he was like, uh, what now? Like, he was just like, there's eggs in custard? Like, what? Like, it was very much like, okay, we're going to have to go back to first principles here. He was just totally confused by my whole anecdote. It was television gold, as you can imagine. What about Kevin? And then Kevin, his first response is just like, are you telling me you gave me Tony Abbott's leftovers? <laughs> that was... And, like, really, it summed up the both of them beautifully for me. Um, but uh, I don't know why 47 egg yolks are involved, but I'm telling you that when you make pasta, if you ever get around to that very pleasurable task, you will happily discover that pasta is made from eggs and flour. Right. Just the yolks. Well, it depends. It depends right. how sort of golden you want it to be. Right. And if you really want a, like a top-end, very eggy pasta that is like golden and very al dente, then you smash 47 egg yolks into one <laughs> kilo of Tipo Double Zero flour. <laughs> and okay. <laughs> Back to the kingfish ham. What is that? Right. Just... She's really marching me along. I'm like, Don't make me get all 7.30 on I your I know. Like, I'm like... I'm, I'm like Barnaby Joyce at the point where I'm saying, leave me alone. You're like, march along, dude. Um, so, I, uh, so kingfish ham is ham that's made not from pork but from fish. But so is it really ham? Well, in, look, you can put your own inverted commas in wherever you like, love, but like, that's what he calls it. It's the recipe, so that's what I'm calling it. So what you do is you cure... I bought a whole kingfish at crippling expense from the Sydney markets and um, got two big fillets and then I um, 
covered the fillets in salt and sugar to cure them and left them in the fridge for about a week like that. Yeah. And so what happens is that all of this fluid, like, comes off the fish. It's not an attractive process. Like, and you've got to keep turning it and whatever. And then it, it goes, because all the liquids come out, it's quite firm. And then you wash off the, um, the cure, pat it dry, and then um, put the fish fillets onto a rack into a cold oven. And then you do something really quite dramatic, which is that you get some smoking chips, like wooden chips, and put them in an old saucepan on top of your stove and, like, jack up the, um, the gas to 110. And then what happens is that the wood chips catch fire in the saucepan. So you essentially make a bushfire in your own home. Okay. And then you wait until it's, like, really well alight and your children are just going... What is going on? Can I just pause here? So you're about to eat fish that you've kept in the fridge for 11 days and you set your stove on fire and that's the process. And we're only halfway through the process. Wow. So then you smother the flames with a saucepan lid or whatever you have handy and then you put the whole thing into the cold oven with the fish on the racks. Then you take the lid off and then you shut the door and it just smokes it. It is amazing how long smoke sticks around inside that oven. Like 20 minutes later you'll open it and it's like... Wow. And then you, you repeat that three times. You do. Wow. And then you wrap the whole thing and it's gone all burnished and sort of it looks all smoky and delicious. I guess this gives you time to crack your 47 eggs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you wrap it up in cloth and then you let it cure in the fridge for another week. Oh. And then it's delicious. Wow. It really is so good. What does it taste like? It tastes a bit like ham. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It just... Wow. Just like that shaved ham you can get at the deli and buy in like 35 seconds or... Look, it tastes like special ham and also (laughs) it's, you know... You can feed it to your friends that don't eat pork, so it's, you know... It's... Have you served this to me at your house? I don't think I've eaten... I don't... I didn't get to eat it, did I? It's your attention to detail that I love. You're just, <laughs> just like, just has any it. of this weird pig, like, fish ham thing ever been fed to me? Because please tell me that... It could have just come on a cracker or something, and I've gone, oh, thanks. Like, I wouldn't know. <laughs> um... I think it was fun. I finally got to tell my story and you endured it. It's a good story. Thanks. I'm not lying. That was, I was interested by that. Yesterday, (laughs) I, um, I've now branched out on my own and I yesterday did some tuna ham, guys. So like that is curing. Applying the same method. Come round in about a week and it'll be ready. Same method, doing the same thing. Oh yeah. Wow. That's, were you nervous about eating it, thinking, oh, I hope I've done everything right and that it's actually cured? And No, because it's just basic chemistry. Like, you know, if you salt and if you salt a fish, it will last for, like, haven't you ever been to one of those Portuguese shops where there's salt fish just sitting around sure, in the sure, but it's also, room temperature? Like, salt sure, preserves things. Sure, but it's also basic chemistry that if you mess that up, you're dying of salmonella poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> Throw enough salt at it and no one will die. That's like just pretty much my rule of life. <laughs> okay, we are going to take some questions from the audience. Is it now 11.30pm? Like just out of interest. Is it, it 11.30pm? It is 9.01 and you said we'd 
go to questions at nine and I've kept a close See? watch on the time. <laughs> I've no idea what time it is, but like, and oh, like wrap to, it up sales. Is, I like to uh, keep things running to order. She needs to, to be order. in bed by 9.25, obviously. So. <laughs> now, I think there's, there are two microphones on stands at either end there. Yeah, we're really, going to bring the house We've really up. thrown them in like with no notice on the questions. Like, I should have said at and the start. They better be interesting questions as well as the other thing. Should've hey, while we're doing like... Can there's we... two mics at the top too. Oh, there's people holding mics at the top. So if you want to ask a question and you're at the top, you can just go out to the end and then there's someone there holding a mic. So. You would have made an awesome sheepdog. Just like, <laughs> get behind. Gone. Is it my shiny coat? <laughs> I don't have a question. I have a presentation. Oh, The good. lovely Liz Coffey <gasps> has created Chat 10 Looks 3 Monopoly. And oh. so uh, Charlotte, who's here tonight, printed it off, and oh. I'm presenting it. Oh, oh. I claim nothing but My lovely assistant will uh, accept that. That is so tremendous. I tell you what, if it wasn't an intellectual property problem, we could really go into a whole range of board games. <laughs> Nopi Expressway, Blue Hill Passage, Spaghetti Tree Lane, that'd be your address. Not an expensive address, I notice. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that is oh, so I cool. That. I love how we mention Helen Garner so often that there's Helen Garner Drive, Helen Garner Estate, Helen Garner Boulevard. <laughs> I think Helen Garner is now starting to fear us a little bit. Have you found her a bit unresponsive recently? <laughs> no. Oh, Richard Feidler's cul-de-sac. <laughs> <laughs> A fabled location. <laughs> I must tell, must tell Feidler that his cul-de-sacs made it to a board game. Thank you so much to the chatter who made that, that for so us. That is so good. Very, very good. Um, okay, now. Hey, and we haven't had a proper double clang yet, and I know that we have one available for Nigella Lawson because both of us interviewed her in a kind of weird... It was like a... It's an epic clang. It was clang, like a, clang. It was like a key party. I don't know. So what were you doing with her? Well, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I note from my um, casual viewing of your television program that you bought her lunch. I didn't. Uh, we went and had a rubber chicken lunch at... Um, at uh, actually, it was quite a nice lunch. I shouldn't call it a rubber chicken lunch. Um, it was the um, Dimmick's uh, literary lunch, which was awesome because I got to ask her about, you know, things that she reads and books that she's loved and changed her mind about and all that sort of thing. She really is, like, quite... An extraordinary performer, I reckon, that woman. And very well read. Yeah. I discovered. Um, so who goes to, like, a Dimmick's literary lunch? Is it retirees or what's the... Well, there was about, like, 600 people there. I didn't interview all of them. 600? Yeah. Wow. Oh, no, it's a massive All thing. having lunch around tables. That's massive. Where was yes. that? Was it a hotel? I can't remember which one because now oh, you're freaking man. me out with your <laughs> apparent <laughs> lack of... I'm just amazed. ...familiarity with this format. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm just stunned that like 600 people have got time to go to literary lunch. Wow. <laughs> Nigella. Uh, so Nigella did 7:30, and it, we didn't really have lunch. It was sort of stunt lunch. It was just fake. Oh. Yeah, to look like we were sharing lunch, but we weren't really. Um, but it was at a tavola in Sydney, so we just had a bit of food on the table. But Nigella wanted to eat some. She's so a good. bit of a performance artist, I reckon. Like, cause she does, she does an incredible number of 
appearances when she comes to Australia, like she did the Sydney Opera House, and then she was at the Enmore, which is this sort of like rock pig venue in <laughs> in the, the inner west of Sydney, and then I think like you know. So if you if you go to see Nigella at the Enmore, there's you know going to be fifteen hundred to two thousand people there probably, and so they all want their Nigella book signed, I assume, at the end. And she just signs and signs and signs for like four hours until there's no people left. Wow! And then she goes home and gets up for breakfast radio in the next morning. And That's a Bramovich style. She was saying style. as I was talking to her, just we were just chatting because obviously we're very good friends, and um, <laughs> she said, oh, look, I can do the stage stuff indefinitely. It's the, it's the signing cues that I find really, really, really taxing because you're kind of having this quite intense emotional interaction with everybody who comes up and you're managing their kind of nervousness or their, you know... Oh, and um, I thought, oh, it's actually a bit Abramovichian, I reckon. Do you reckon that when Abramovich was looking at the people, was it draining her emotionally or was she just like, yeah, I'm just looking at you but I'm thinking about what no, I'm going to No, I think dinner. she was really – I think that is work. I think she was working really hard to create something for each of those people, which is incredibly difficult to do and I think that's what the old Nigella does as well. If you'd had to sit in front of Marina Abramovich, what do you reckon you would have been thinking about as you looked at her? I just – it's like being asked, like, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would you eat? Like, you've got to think really – like carefully about the answer because like you can see all of these people all wanting to sort of be different or make an impression or like there was that guy who like actually turned up and then at the last minute pulled pulled out this mirror that he'd mounted to a headband (laughs) and he like put it on his face so that he was like the mirror man and he just got just hustled yeah, out the of there. Yeah, the security was really strict. Seconds. If you did anything, it was just like, in fact, I see what you're doing, smart ass. Out in the Heather Rose book and in the doco, there's a woman who, who's a sort of character in the book, but obviously happened in real life. Who she goes to sit down in front of her, and then she just strips off naked, and then the security just hustles yeah. her out of there instantly. <laughs> That'd be like one fun security job, wouldn't it? Like, <sighs> oh yeah, what are you doing, Ralph? Yeah, well, I'm working the Marina Abramovich exhibition, so it's just basically nude people and guys with mirrors strapped you know, to their faces. What about you? Oh, just you know, car alarms. <laughs> And, you know, people were, like, sleeping overnight to get to be able to... Because there was no time limit. So you might stay there all night, but if the person in front of you wanted to sit there for five hours, you might not get your turn, even though you slept there all night. It's like the grains of rice. Sorry, we should stop talking in case somebody else wants to ask a question. We are totally question time. I feel like that guy in a group conversation that's just staying there quietly nodding. Wondering when it's time to leave. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's fine. Um, Forgive me if this is something that's been covered in a past podcast, but... Lee, we know all too well your love of musicals and show tunes, but we covered at the top of the hour how um, you have opinions on rap and whether rap is music, hip-hop. And I want to know whether you've dipped your toes yet into the pool that is Hamilton the musical. Good question. Um, I have not, even though I have been told to, and I thought... I think that you have not because you've been told to so many times. I've seen you do this before... You've just got this little set to your jaw where everyone's just gone, oh, oh, the Hamilton music. You've got to see that. And you're like, mm-hmm, mm-mm. Do you, do you love it? Um, yes, more yeah, than life itself. Yeah. Look, every, every person that I know who's listened to it loves it and I really should do it. And I have I, friends like you who have avoided it and I've unrelentlessly pointed them and they thank me later, so. <laughs> um, I... I Debated long and hard when I was in New York recently. <laughs> if oh, I should go... Were you in New York? I, that totally passed me by. <laughs> if I, I really 
agonised over it. But the week I was there between Christmas and New Year, the tickets were twelve hundred US dollars. Twelve hundred bucks. And I'd already dropped. You could buy a senator for that. <laughs> <laughs> you could have Hamilton exhumed. <laughs> Oh. Seems quite reasonable, really. <laughs> um, and I'd already plonked... I'd sort of designed the timing of the whole trip so I could see Bette Midler in Hello, Dolly, and I'd plonked down three, <laughs> 350 on Here's that. Here's where you start to learn about this woman's real priorities. She's like, <laughs> what? I spent 350 Babs? on that because I thought that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and I just thought, you've got to draw the line somewhere, and I just I can't afford to spend that amount of money. So I didn't um, see it. Which, ABC you know, overpaid fat cat refuses to shell out for... <laughs> Batman's musical. Refuses to support the arts community. <laughs> so, no, but that, you know, that's no, ex- no excuse for why I haven't bothered to listen to the soundtrack, because I should, because you were like the 11th person to tell me that I really should do <laughs> and that. And you are yeah, just another brick in the wall stopping her from doing it. So, like, that's... <laughs> um, is that Thank someone you. up there that wants to ask a question? Oh, yeah, okay, thanks. Do you reread books? And if you do, what book do you dare not read again, just in case it's not as good the second time? Ooh. Just in case it's what? Just in case it's what? Not as good the second time. Not as good the second oh. time. Look, one of my favourite, favourite books that I just think is a work of genius is a book called um, The Child in Time by um, Ian McEwan. And I, I cannot read that again now that I have children. Like, it's just, I find it, I will reread it again and love it, but like while I have little children, I find it too confronting. And I look forward to the day where I can read that book again because it, it, it's such a brilliant book. Um, but the ones that I, um, I... I think I probably... There are books that I loved when I was younger that I, I think I, could, I would probably cringe a bit to go back and reread now. Like, I went through this huge Jeanette Winterson phase where I loved the passion and I was just like, oh, I wrote down bits of it and, you know, I didn't consider a tattoo because, you know, I was too impecunious to do so and probably sensibly I didn't. But, you know, I think I probably would read that back now and think it was a bit overblown, although I love, like, other bits of Jeanette Winterson, but I, it was a little bit too fantasy I think, for me now. Um, so I think if you identify books that you can go back to again and again and always love and like, you know, Lolita I will always go back to and reread and always find a new pleasure in, um, then they are great books to have around. But you've got to keep moving. got to keep moving. I reckon as I've got older as well, it's not a specific answer to your question, but I have become less interested in replicating experiences that I've had that I've thought are really good because I've had lived enough to know that sometimes if you try to revisit something, it doesn't quite work out as well as it did the first time. Yeah, I like, got that when I watched The Goodies as an adult. I'm like, this is hilarious. Oh. It was really, really perfect <laughs> when I was a kid. And I always thought that Bill Oddie was the funny one. And then when you grow up, you realise that Graham Garden was the funny <laughs> one and, like, you just didn't realise that at the time. Sorry. Like, I'm not... Like, you know how in the last podcast I talked about going to Blue Hill um, when I was in New York? Um, I, oh, yeah, that's right. Mm. I'm not sure I'd go back there again because that was a perfect and complete experience and so I think why would I mess with my memory of that by risking that I go again and it's going to be like oh it's not so good you might cop a suboptimal radish (laughs) (laughs) that's all right um okay great question thank you I just have a quick question and I hope Lee won't mind because it's directed at her and I suspect the answer will be quite short go hard 
So firstly, it's a thank you to Lee for recommendation very early on in the podcast for RuPaul's Drag Race, which has brought so many hours of happiness to my life and so many hours of annoyance to everyone I know (laughs) as I repeatedly bug them to watch it with me. Um, My question is, are you still watching? Do you have a prediction for the winner of All Stars 3? And if you've watched today's episode, please don't tell me how it ends because I haven't said it yet. (laughs) Um... Uh, is Hans out there? Hans, can you come back out? I actually have to admit I haven't been watching All Stars, but I know that Hans has because he just raised it with me backstage. No spoilers. Um, so I'm going just... <laughs> to get him to answer. Team Shangela all the way. <laughs> and I think um, we can end the show there because it gives me a perfect way to end it, which is to say, Chatters, don't fuck it up. <laughs> Thank you all. That was surprising, wasn't it? You are a shocker. You're an absolute Barry Crocker. My parents are in the audience. They don't like salty language. Excuse her, everybody. Thank you for coming. <laughs>